A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, leaders of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a cripple, namely by what means he was saved, then all of you and all of the people of Israel should know that it was in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In his name, this man stands before you healed. He is a stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation through anyone else, nor is is any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are to be saved.
A reading from the first letter of St. John. Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called the children of God. Yet so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we, sh- for we shall see him as he is. Verbum Domini. Luxio Sancti Evangelii Secundum Ioannem. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine and mine know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, These also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father, Domini. 
There's a short video that has garnered a significant number of views on social media that involves a boy who appears to be around 13 or 14 years old and a sheep. The two are on a dirt road and there is a deep, narrow rut that runs along the middle of the road, you know, straight down the middle of the road. And the sheep has gotten completely stuck in this rut and desperately is trying to get out. And so the boy assists the sheep and manages to pull it out with the assistance of a leather strap. And so overjoyed at having been set free, the sheep bounds once again down the road, takes a big leap in the air, and lands right back into the same rut again. I think this is a, a good image of what happens to a lot of us shortly after confession. Now this fourth Sunday of Easter is also known as Good Shepherd Sunday. The gospel reading each year in the three-year liturgical cycle is taken from John chapter 10, in which Jesus describes himself as the Good Shepherd. And the image of a shepherd is used many times throughout the scriptures because it is a powerful analogy for the meticulous care that God shows towards his people. An agrarian culture such as ancient Israel would have been very familiar with the, this image, but also with the duties and the responsibilities of a shepherd. A shepherd is with his flock around the clock, is expected to lead the flock to water and to good pastures for feeding, to fight off or scare away predators, to shear them, to protect them from poisonous plants, to bathe them, and to treat their wounds. As Jesus says, he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. All of those who belong to his one flock. In the Old Testament, kings, rulers, and priests are all described as shepherds of Israel. Unfortunately, many of them turn out to be terrible, wicked shepherds themselves. They were supposed to represent God to his people, but they instead became more concerned with their own welfare and pleasure. As Jesus says, they are hirelings who have no concern for the sheep. On the other hand, Jesus is the good shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he willingly lays down his life for them. Jesus also says that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. He is not merely acquainted with his sheep, but he knows them personally, each and every one of them, and he understands them. The Greek verb that is translated to know implies something more intimate than simply being acquainted with another person. And this does not necessarily mean intimate in a sensual way, but it's a knowing that is very close and personal. Jesus knows his sheep in a very deep way and understands them. On the other hand, his sheep likewise know the good shepherd intimately and personally. 
And our knowledge of Christ comes through faith. It's impossible to know or to understand Christ without faith, without believing in every word that he utters. Our faith gives us comfort in the fact that Jesus knows us intimately and cares so much for each one of us. He hears and responds to the prayers, to the bleeding of those sheep who belong to his fold. In the gospel reading from year A, which was last year, Jesus speaks of how his sheep, those who belong to the one flock, follow him because they recognize his voice. And in today's reading, which is the reading from year B, Jesus speaks of other sheep that do not belong to his fold. They too will hear Jesus' voice and will come to Jesus so that there will be one flock. Now in a historical context, these other sheep would have stood for the Gentiles, many you know, who were outside of the nation of Israel. And many of them come to recognize the voice of Christ through the preaching of the apostles and their successors. And so they come to follow Christ and come into the one fold, the one Catholic church. Nowadays, this distinction between Jew and Gentile no longer carries the same significance. We now distinguish between those who are currently members of the church and those who are outside of the church. And yet our Lord's words should inspire us to look upon those who are outside of the church, not as enemies or outsiders, but as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Since we, the, the sheep, know our good shepherd by faith, we know that he desires the salvation of all. And so we should treat those outside of the church as if they are already part of the church, with the exception of offering them the sacraments until they're ready. Our acts of kindness, goodness, and generosity towards them could be the means by which they encounter the love and mercy of Christ and enter into the one flock. Now I mentioned that those sheep who do not currently belong to the one fold will be able to hear the good shepherd's voice through the apostle's successors. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 881, the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles, united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. Paragraph 85 describes the magisterium of the church. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, 
has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And then continuing in paragraph 86, yet this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication and expounds it faithfully. And finally, in paragraph 87, mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you, hears me, the faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. Now notice the words with docility. This calls to mind the attitude of docility and obedience that the sheep ought to exhibit towards their shepherd, one who hears the shepherd's voice and follows it. Now here's another, and I think this is a very important paragraph about the magisterium in paragraph 889. In order to preserve the church in the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, Christ, who is the truth, will to confer on her a share in his own infallibility. By a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God under the guidance of the church's living magisterium unfailingly adheres to this faith. So notice that the catechism says the church's living magisterium. This suggests that the, the magisterium does not simply comprise the writings of previous popes and the popes in communion with those popes, or and the bishops in communion with those popes. The magisterium is currently living. It's a living magisterium. It's alive. This means that according to Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the magisterium is alive and well today in Pope Francis and the bishops united to him. The magisterium has not come to an end and will never come to an end because Christ is always faithful to his promises. Christ continues to speak to his flock through the current magisterium. The First Vatican Council has affirmed in the dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus, the following. In this way, by unity with the Roman pontiff, in communion and in profession of the same faith, the Church of Christ becomes one flock under one supreme shepherd. This is the teaching of the Catholic truth, and no one can depart from it without endangering his faith and salvation. Clearly, the Holy Father is the representative of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned Pope Francis and the bishops, I recognize that a number of Catholics have had issues 
with the Holy Father and with, another, with other select bishops. And while I can sympathize with people who have genuine difficulties or concerns, and I certainly am open to people bringing those concerns to me, I do need to issue a severe warning against any tendency to simply write off the teachings of the Holy Father or even to go so far as to question the validity of his office. To question the validity of papal authority or to refuse submission to the Pope in matters of faith or morals is a very serious matter and can constitute the sin of schism. The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines schism as the refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff or of communion with the members of the church subject to him. If we commit the sin of schism knowingly and willingly and do not repent, we risk eternal damnation. And that's according to the First Vatican Council. So this is a, a very serious matter. Now, when it comes to the teachings of the Holy Father, anything that is issued in the form of universal letters, homilies, angelus addresses, speeches, and other similar modes of communication are considered part of the ordinary magisterium of the church, even if they are not definitively declared ex cathedra from the See of Peter. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that we are to give what's called religious assent to these teachings. Now, although religious assent is distinct from the assent of faith, which is given directly to the deposit of faith, it is an extension of the assent of faith. And a good example of this is the Church's teaching on in, virtu in vitro fertilization as being morally unacceptable. This is not a teaching that is contained in a deposit of faith. It wasn't something that was passed on by Jesus and the apostles to the church. So it does not require the assent of faith. Yet it is an extension of the church's teaching on the dignity of human life and on natural procreation. And so it requires religious assent, what we call religious assent. When it comes to these teachings that are an extension of the deposit of faith, we might not personally agree with them. We might not understand them. Yet we are required to give religious assent to them out of our faith in and our love for Christ, who has given his flock the office of the papacy and the college of bishops in order to perpetuate the shepherding of his people. Another example is Pope Francis's change to the paragraph in the Catechism on the death penalty, which states that it is now inadmissible, that the death penalty is inadmissible, and that the church works for its abolition. Now, we might not personally agree with this change, but our faith requires that we give religious assent to it. You know, we cannot say to ourselves, I think the Pope is wrong, and so I'll still continue to support the death penalty. This would be contrary to our communion with the Holy Father and with the church. And this attitude might not rise to the level of formal schism, but it could eventually 
if we continue to have this attitude of resistance towards the Holy Father. Even if we do not understand this change, we have to have faith in the words of Christ that the Holy Spirit continues to work through the living magisterium. We certainly do not want to stand before Christ at our final judgment and have to answer for having encouraged resistance and disobedience towards his vicar on earth. Now, I think what often happens in the church today is that we tend to view our faith through a lens that is political or ideological or even economic. You know, both liberals and conservatives, the left and the right, tend to see the church only through their ideological biases. They forget that the church is not merely a political institution. The teaching of the church does not perfectly align with any single ideology. Every ideology is going to have certain things about church teaching that is agreeable while rejecting or ignoring other things. So for example, the church teaches that abortion and euthanasia are intrinsically evil. And this appeals more to conservatives. Whereas at the same time, the church teaches that we have a responsibility in justice and for the sake of the common good to assist those who are in poverty and to assist women with unwanted pregnancies, which appeals more to liberals. As Catholics, we must strive to the best of our ability to remove these ideological lenses so that we might be able to see things more clearly with the eyes of faith, to put on the mind of Christ. This requires a knowledge of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the guidance of the magisterium. When we listen to the Holy Father and read his words, we should not do so solely through biased media outlets that misrepresent his words and take them out of context, which happens all the time, because they all have their own agenda. Rather, we should show the proper respect towards him and listen to or read his words for ourselves in their proper context. Now, admittedly, I have failed to do this in the past, and at times I have been unfair towards the Holy Father. But in the last year, I, have strove, I strove to remove any sort of ideological thinking that I might have had in my mind and began reading and listening to the Holy Father myself. And I've realized that everything that I've read so far has been entirely in line with scripture and tradition. It is so important that we have faith in Christ, the Good Shepherd, and that we continue to listen, continue to hear his voice as he speaks to us through the living magisterium. As the Catechism says in paragraph 882, it is the Pope who is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. Now in 1969, before he was Pope, 
Father Joseph Ratzinger did a radio program in Germany during which he offered some predictions for the future of the church. And here is one of the things he said. The church will be a more spiritual church, not presuming upon a, a political mandate, flirting as little with the left as with the right. It will be hard going for the church. For the process of crystallization and clarification will cost her much valuable energy. It will make her poor and cause her to become the church of the meek. And I think these words are very helpful for our times. He's basically predicting what we're going through. It's a very, it's very difficult times that we're going through. But it's a reminder that absolutely speaking, we should not be a church divided between left or right, or uh, liberal or conservative. As much as possible, we need to allow these old political allegiances and ideologies to give way to a stronger unity and a more unified vision of the church. And as bad as things might seem in the church today with all of the infighting and division, we can see a small silver lining. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is working ever so quietly and patiently behind the scenes in bringing the church back to a stronger unity. Indeed, it's difficult to see. I understand that. But I've been able to discern certain signs of it here and there, you know, being able to read the signs of the times. So we must always remember that despite our differences, we must all strive to remain united in one flock, the church, under one good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this stems from our perennial belief that outside of the church, there is no salvation.